tonight's reading will be from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. <clears throat> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, which is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Andrew. Let's just pray before we look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come now to to meditate upon your Word, Lord, and we pray that you would speak clearly to us through this epistle from James. Lord, we pray that you would be present in our thoughts, that you would have us hear what you would have us hear this, this evening, Lord. We pray that your word would speak to us in your precious son's name. Amen. So tonight we we begin uh, a short series uh, in the epistle of James. And our time, as, as Michael has read for us, is going to be focused on the first 17 verses of chapter 1. I appreciate that we're tighter for, for time this evening because we have... A time of prayer, but before we launch into the passage, so to speak, I thought it would just be helpful if we took a moment to remind ourselves of what this epistle of James is all about. Martin Luther once remarked that this was a right strawy epistle, because it does not sound like Paul's letters, nor does it mention what had become Luther's chief concern, salvation by grace. However, thankfully, Luther does and did not dictate what is included in canon as the inspired word of God. And therefore, before us, we have a letter that is extremely important for the church of today. 
Why, you may ask? Well, let me give you two reasons. The first is this. James wrote his letter to a church under pressure. Christians were not being martyred, but they were suffering economic persecution and oppression. And the church was beginning to break under said pressure. Now when this happens, there are two possible reactions, aren't there? One where the church pulls together to help each other out, or one where it breaks into bickering factions. And with a backdrop of the latter, James encourages his readers in this letter to do the former, to pull together. These are problems that still pervade today, hence its relevance for us just now. Secondly, the letter of James is filled with the teaching of Jesus. Now you may think that that is a given for any New Testament book, but page for page, no other letter of the New Testament has as many direct references to Jesus' teaching as the epistle of James. Whilst perhaps not direct verbatim quotes, James uses a writing style which brings to the floor phrases and ideas of Jesus. Most of the teaching is penned from uh, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel or indeed the Sermon on the Plain from Luke's. Therefore, this letter of James becomes for us a model on how the modern church should apply the teaching of Jesus. And therefore, over the next few weeks, it should be our prayer and our desire that, that we come to learn how to better live in gospel unity and operate practically as Christians in the light of Jesus' teaching through this letter. This will become, I'm sure, our common thread. So with this in mind, let us turn to our passage this evening, a passage which centres on the application of testing one's faith. That's what verses 2 through to 17 are all about. But before we move on to that, just as a very quick aside and observation, you will notice that James introduces himself slightly different to how other epistle authors introduce themselves. He introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that introduction, we get the immediate understanding that he is speaking about the oneness of the Father and the Son. This is who he is serving. He is serving the heavenly Father, the one who makes all things. And at the same time, he is serving his rescuing king. The God who has created him and the God who has saved him. This is who he is serving. So when he lays out for us the practicalities that he's about to say, he wants his audience to take note that he is speaking from the point of view of serving the Father and the Son who are one. So, testing one's faith. There are three tests of faith that I believe we see in our text tonight. We see the test of faith in suffering. We see the test of faith in prayer. And we see the test of faith in the face of temptation. Test of faith in suffering, test of faith in prayer, and the test of faith in temptation. Firstly then, the test of faith in suffering. Let's reread verses 2 and 3. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Strange as it may seem, one of the primary purposes of being shaken by suffering is to make our faith more unshakable. Faith is like a muscle tissue. If you stress it to the limit, it gets stronger, not weaker. That's what James means here. When your faith is threatened and tested and stretched to breaking point, the result is a greater capacity to endure. He calls it steadfastness. God loves faith so much that he will test it to the breaking point so as to keep it pure and strong. Where else do we see this? Well, we see it in Paul's life. If you were to look at 2 Corinthians 1, it says this in verses 8 and 9. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely Not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The words in that passage, but that was to, show that there was a purpose in this extreme suffering. It was in order that, for the purpose that, God would, Paul, sorry, would not rely on himself and his resources, but rather on God, specifically the promised grace of God in raising the dead. God so values our wholehearted faith that he will graciously, if necessary, take away everything else in this world that we might be tempted to rely on. Even life itself. His aim is that we grow deeper and stronger in our confidence that he himself may be all we need. He wants us to be able to say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Practically, however, what does that look for us here right now? You may think that you don't want to suffer, because you don't think you have the strength to endure. Or perhaps you, you may already feel like you're suffering, but that is not producing the steadfastness that James speaks of. Or of course you may feel just like you're coasting along, and that there isn't any potential in your life for any real form of suffering. You're in good health, you're materially secure, and everyone at least is outwardly happy. Commenting on each of these individually, I think that there are some principles in God's word that we can hold on to. In the season where we don't feel that we can be tested, that often arises from a place where we lose sight of the eternal promises that we read in God's word. We need to hold on to the promise in his word that we will never be tested beyond our means, that we will never suffer beyond that which we can endure. Second Corinthians, I'm taking this from the contemporary English version, says this, we often suffer, but we are never crushed. Even when we don't know what to do, 
we never give up. In times of trouble, God is with us. And when we are knocked down, we get up again. We face death every day because of Jesus. Our bodies show what his death was like, so his life can also be seen in us. We are to view our call to testing through suffering differently. We are to view it through the lens that our suffering is for his sake. And because of his sake, we can actually overcome suffering. We can overcome suffering eternally. Eternally at the place set for us in our father's house. Our destination isn't a place of forever suffering. That's why we can live up to testing through suffering. Because we are able with him and because his promise is to eternally relieve us of that through what he has accomplished on the cross. In the season where our testing is not leading to that feeling of steadfastness, then please be encouraged that it probably is. Think back to the book of Job, where we learn that wherever there is suffering, there is a battle. A battle for the soul. The book of Job shows us that there can be two ways to respond to suffering. One that curses God because of suffering. And then one that praises God even in the midst of suffering. And so when you're suffering, you're in that battle. In that battle, the devil's aim is to develop feelings within you that seek to dilute your faith and reliance on the rock of God. It seeks to eat into that sense of steadfastness. The counterattack to that is to praise God in our suffering and to proclaim his victory over the evil one's ways. It's counterintuitive, I know, and indeed the counterintuitive truth about suffering is that it prepares Christians for more glory. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. This light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. These verses are like sandpaper on our modern sentiments about suffering. We naturally try to avoid suffering at all costs, but God brings suffering in our lives for the sake of our eternal joy, and yes, even for our glory. Then in the season where we're coasting, and we don't feel that we need to deal with suffering, Then without sounding glib, enjoy the moment, but at the same time, prepare yourself for suffering. Romans 8, around verse 18, speaks about suffering. And we know in there that the whole of creation is to groan in pain. Paul's assumption being, therefore, somehow, someway, all of us will suffer. Be that as a child at the hands of a school bully, be it financial hardship, ill health, loneliness, loss, mental health issues. We will all suffer and we should prepare for it. The Bible says that we will suffer because God has determined in between the already of our salvation and the not yet of our going home that there will be suffering for the Christian. 
We are living in a world that's dramatically broken, that will not operate according to the original plan, and therefore dealing with what's in front of us whilst remaining anchored in our faith is a testing of that faith. Our call is to knuckle down and to be ready for it. The second test of our faith is our desire to come to the Lord in prayer. There is clearly a link between one's suffering and one's practical response to that suffering. And it's this, to spend time petitioning the Lord in prayer. And you will note that when James calls us to this practical application, he develops his point by highlighting that we should come to the Lord in prayer with expectant hearts. That we should come to his throne room not with an underwhelming evaluation of his goodness to us. Prayers simply springing from our lips while our hearts only mumble, ask not to be heard. When our hearts roll their eyes as we half-heartedly ask for what we don't expect to receive, we dishonour God and anchor our prayers to earth. This is how James puts it. Look with me. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all ways. On the contrary, Hebrews 11 and verse 6 tells us, That the prayers of faith which draw near to God know not only that he exists, but that he is good. That he rewards those who seek him. Note the confidence that Jesus, that James expects us to come to God with. He expects us to come to God with no doubting. He expects us to come with expectant hearts. For if we doubt, we'll be like a wave that is driven and tossed by the wind. What do we feel about this analogy? Is it representative of our prayer life? Is our prayer life one that is marked by confidence? Or is it one that is marked by doubt? Are our prayer lives born out of a duty that we feel to pray? Are our prayer lives concocted only in response to the challenging situations that we find ourselves in? Or are our prayer lives consistent with a humbled, disciplined, regular expectation before the throne of God? Not necessarily an expectation for God to intervene in the way that we would like, but rather an expectation for God to exhibit his sovereign hand over the utterances of our lips. I often wonder exactly what Daniel prayed for when he knew that the edict had been put in place to forbid the practice of prayer. We read in texts before the edict that he had prayed prayers of praise. We know that he prayed secretly and diligently. Three times a day, in fact, after the edict, did he continue to supplicate himself to the Lord. All in the knowledge that what he was doing was punishable by death. Yet pray he did. And I don't think it's a stretch that what we see Daniel model in prayer is what James speaks of here. Daniel clearly depended on the Lord in prayer. His prayer time clearly wasn't frivolous. He spent time on his knees 
clearly in confident expectation. Confident expectation that no matter the outcome of his prayer, no matter the consequence, that it was worth it. For he knew that the Lord was merciful. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 4 says this from the King James translation. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, great God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. That's the second test of faith. To pray unto the Lord, making confession, relying on him, and as a result, being blessed by his merciful covenant promises. The third test of faith that we see in our passage is the test of temptation. We'll focus on verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The word trial, verse 12, the word test, verse 12, the words tempted or tempts, verse 13 and 14, are all the same word in the original Greek. And the reason I have chosen to focus on the word temptation is because I think that it's a word that is more relatable to us than trial or test in the context of these verses. For these verses speak about something that gives birth to sin. And sin, of course, when it is fully grown, has the potential to bring forth death. And when we think about the topic of sin in relation to us, for these verses are very much focused on us, the precursor to entering into sin is yielding to temptation. It may, of course, just be me But I don't equate things like pornography or greed, pride, envy, drunkenness, slander or gossip as trials or tests that I have to run. But rather as temptations. Things that exist and surround us every day. Things that we have an option over. The option to stay and to face them down. Or the option to yield and to indulge in the sin. And James's practical call here is for you and for I to take ownership over these temptations. It is for you and I, verse 14, to not be tempted by our own desires. It is for you and I to not rail against God for us being exposed to temptation. Maybe you think that's a wild notion, but remember, that's what Israel did. Ten times in the wilderness they complained that all of this temptation was God's fault. And therefore James sets out for his audience and to us very plainly here in verse 13 that God tempts no one. But God does do something else. He rewards those who stand up to temptation. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under temptation. For when he is stood against the temptation... He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love them. 
Jesus alone has atoned for sin. Jesus alone makes the receipt of the crown of life possible for us. But James highlights something for us here. He highlights to us that our saved lives have to be lived out differently. The expectation is that because of our redeemed life, we will seek to follow in Jesus' ways. We will seek to remain steadfast. We will seek to do what Jesus did in the desert plain and not yield to temptation. Blessed, it says, will our lives be. Happier will our lives be if that reflects us. A test of faith is to yield not to temptation. Three tests of faith. The test of faith in suffering, the test of faith in praying, and the test of faith in in temptation. All linked by steadfastness. Steadfastness produced from suffering. Steadfastness present in the lives of those who pray, i.e. not unstable. And steadfast are those who face down temptation. Let me finish with the words of 1 Corinthians 15 and 58. It's addressed to us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may it be our prayer tonight that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing that our work for you is not in vain. Lord, may be that the characteristic that is evident in our lives. Lord, we pray for grace to do that. We pray for Hearts that seek to reflect your ways. We pray for minds to stand up to temptation when it follows us. We pray that we would seek your face at all times. In your precious son's name. Amen.